0: Thanks, Gary. Let's just pray before we unpack tonight's message. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that um, you so graciously give it to us to to unpack and to learn. And Lord, as we do that this evening, I ask that you will open our eyes and that you will excite our hearts with a, a new passion to go and share your message to the world. So, Lord, I pray that you help me this evening. I pray that you will um, give me courage to speak well and clearly um, and open our ears for your glory, Lord. Amen. <clears throat> okay. Have we got the presentation, Tom? Great, thank you. So, before we dig into the scriptures that we've just heard from Gary, I think it's helpful to find out. How Paul ended up in the city of Athens. After the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch to share with the church news of what happened at that council. Sometime later, Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement and they go their separate ways. Barnabas sets off with John, who's also known as Mark, To Cyprus, whereas Paul sets off with Silas to Asia on what theologians now refer to as Paul's second missionary journey. Despite setting out on this journey with the intention of ministering to people in the province of Asia, the Holy Spirit has other plans. Have we ever had that in our lives? And he diverts Paul and his companions away from Asia and redirects them towards the region of Macedonia. John Stott describes this result as the um, God-ordained diversion and as the first time where we see the good seed of the gospel being planted on European soil. Now, I don't know if you can see on your maps, it's quite hard to make out, but Macedonia is in the top left-hand center. Once in Macedonia, Paul and his companions focused their mission on three strategic cities, which have kind of circled around there. We have Philippi, Thessalonica and Beria, which you can read about in Acts 16 and the first part of Acts 17. In the first part of the passage that we're exploring this evening, we read that Paul is now in Athens and he's awaiting the arrival of his companions. So how has Paul ended up here and why is he being separated from his friends? Well, in order to understand this, we need to go back a few verses. In chapter 17, verses 10 to 15, Paul, Timothy and Silas had all been preaching the word of God in Beria. It had been going well and Jews and Greeks had both been receiving Paul's teaching and coming to faith. However, When news of this got out, a mob who had been hostile to these guys back in Thessalonica followed them and started to stir up trouble. Things were beginning to get a bit hairy. So in order to keep Paul safe, he was sent onwards to Athens, whereas Silas and Timothy remain in barrier with the intention of joining Paul as soon as they could. Now we're not exactly sure why Paul had to split up from Timothy and Silas. It may have been done as a diversion tactic to throw off the hostile mob that had been causing Paul trouble. Or it could have been that there was unfinished work to do still in Beria that needed the attention of Silas and Timothy. Either way, we don't know. But what we do know is that Paul has arrived safely and he was awaiting the arrival of his friends. Now, as far as we know, this is Paul's first ever visit to the city of Athens. And for a first century Jew, it would have been an assault on the census, to say the least. Athens had been the foremost Greek city-state since the 5th century BC. And despite the rise of the Roman Empire, it was still seen to be the world's intellectual metropolis. It was famous for its stunning architecture, as you can see. It was the birthplace of democracy and it was a place that boasted a rich philosophical heritage inherited from intellectual giants like Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. Yet despite all of Athens' impressive boasts, Paul's attention wasn't captivated by the city's architecture or their philosophy, the philosophy or their intellectual greatness. It was captivated by by the scale of the city's idolatry. In verse 16, the NIV translates Athens as being full of idols. But the English translation that we read doesn't fully paint the picture. The Greek adjective that Luke uses, I'll pronounce this wrong now, cartiloidos is better interpreted as saying that the city was swamped or like drowning in idols. They were everywhere. And it wasn't just Luke and Paul's view that Athens was rife with idolatry. First century Roman satirist Petronius observed from his visit in Athens that it was easier to find a god than to find a man. Now, Petronius may well have been exaggerating for effect, but he wasn't far off the mark, as experts estimate that there would have been around 30,000 different idols to worship in Athens during the first century. Paul was staggered by this. But he saw this firsthand because the first part of verse 23 tells us that Paul walked around and looked carefully At their objects of worship. Now, one of the reasons I love this passage, one of the reasons I love this passage is that we get a glimpse, it's like we get a window behind the curtain into what makes Paul so effective as a minister to the Gentiles. Being able to communicate well with people from different cultures didn't just happen, it took time and it took effort. As Paul took the time to hit the streets of Athens, he was able to get a feel of how the local people ticked, learn what was important to them, where they gathered and how they thought. Now, we're not sure if Paul did this every time he arrived in a new place. It's only mentioned in this passage in Athens. But I wouldn't be surprised if Paul did this kind of renaissance. Reconnaissance mission um, when arriving in a new place. Taking the time to go and to observe carefully may sound simple. You may listen to this and be a bit underwhelmed. But I'm amazed by how often we fail to do such a simple task today. How well do we understand the world that we live in? Is what we think we know about the people around us built on reliable information? Or is what we think we know built on assumption and guesswork? Do we actually know the needs and desires of those living living on our streets and the pressures that people are currently facing in work? Do we know who or what they turn to so so they can get through life? Paul's practical example can be a great starting point for us today when we seek to help reach those, when we seek to reach those around us with the love of Jesus. So how does Paul react as he observes this idolatry in Athens? Well, verse 16 shows us that Paul was left feeling greatly distressed. Again, like the Greek verb used in, um, for what Paul saw, the Greek verb used for greatly distressed, paroxyno, involves feelings of being provoked, irritated, or roused to deep anger and rage. It's a bit more than distress, it's kind of so, so deep. Paul was livid, but the rage that he felt towards what he saw wasn't a sinful rage that we might get when somebody cuts us up on the road, or when we see Liverpool put a fourth goal past your once great football team once again. Now, Paul's rage should be understood more as, more as a righteous anger or indignation, like the anger we read about when we see Moses coming down Mount Sinai in Exodus 32. To witness the Israelites worshipping the golden calf. Or the anger that Jesus displays in the temple. When he cleared out the temple. As Paul walks the streets of Athens. He becomes greatly distressed. Because the worship that should be directed towards God. Is wrongly being directed towards numerous counterfeits. Masquerading as God. Paul is zealous. That the worship and glory are only directed towards the one true God. As we read about Paul's passionate response towards the idolatry in Athens, I find myself being challenged by how I react when I see God being dishonored as I observe idolatry and misguided worship in the world today. Granted, people today might not be offering animal sacrifices to Zeus, Apollos, or Athena, but they do give themselves over to different idols and worship at the altars of status, materialism, the pursuit of happiness, money, sex, power, self-autonomy, celebrity, alcohol, and drugs. How do we feel when we see that kind of idolatry which pervades our culture today? Do we react like Paul? Do we feel greatly distressed? Or do we react indifferently? Or worse still, do we even fail to notice that idolatry is going on right in front of us? Less than 30 years ago, um, the government in the UK allowed shops to open their doors for, on Sunday to trade for the first time. I don't know if you all remember that. Uh, 1994, I remember it. I'm old. <laughs> it was a big deal at the time. I remember it being a big deal. And many people saw it as a good thing, another data shop, yes. But for others, it was another sign that the nation's so-called Christian values were disappearing. A few, years ago, I traveled to in, um, a few years ago, I traveled to Stuttgart in Germany, easy to say. And it was a Sunday, and as I was walking around the city, I realized something really strange. No one was there. No shops were open, and it was just like a ghost town. And suddenly, I had flashbacks of walking through my hometown of Chester as a young boy with my parents, Today, we've become so used to being able to buy something seven days a week, haven't we? Because the country and the culture that we live in allows it. When Sunday trading was allowed 28 years ago, many boycotted Sunday shopping out of principle. However, as the years have gone by, we've slowly got used to it. Why do I mention that? Well, if we're not careful we can become so used to the culture that so used to the culture that we live in that our values can ever so subtly and slowly change and we become just like everyone else i think this can be a real yet subtle danger for the church as i was preparing this talk esther told me about the frog analogy and i thought it's too good to not leave in i'll share that Now, I don't know if this is true, but apparently if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, it hops straight out. But if you put a frog in a pot of cold water and slowly turn up the heat, it slowly dies without even knowing it. I just want to state I've never tried to do this, okay? So don't go, I don't want the RSPCA. Is it RSPCA? Yeah, I don't want them knocking on the door. But the point is, culture can be like the water that is slowly increasing in heat all the while. And we slowly become so much like the world that we become ineffective. We don't even notice it's happening. We need to remember Jesus' words. We do not belong to the world. as As we live as exiles in a foreign land. And it's only when we're reunited with Jesus, when he comes back, that we will truly find ourselves home. So what does Paul do? Well, he doesn't idly sit in the corner and whinge about those naughty, idol-loving Athenians, as tempting as that might have been. Paul's distress moves him into positive and constructive action. So Paul does what he does best, and he goes out and speaks to those in Athens. He does this in three ways. In verse 17, we read that Paul firstly goes out to the synagogue to speak to the Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Now, to be found in the synagogue wasn't unusual for Paul. Throughout Acts, it's well documented that this is one of the first things Paul does when he arrives in a new place. It happens so often, in fact, that in Acts 17 too, Luke describes Paul going to the synagogue as it was being customary. It's almost like he got a bit fed up of saying it. As we read on in verse 17, Paul's ministry isn't limited to the Jews and God-fearers within the synagogue. But Paul also goes to the marketplace to minister among the Gentiles. Now, the Greek name for the marketplace was the Agora, And as well as being a marketplace to buy goods, the Agora was also the center for public living. The literal meaning for the Agora translates as the gathering place or assembly. And it was the center of the the athletic, artistic, business, social, spiritual and political life in the city. And it would also have been the perfect place for Paul to share the message and engage with passers-by. We read that as Paul spoke in the Agora day by day, and uh, we read that as Paul spoke in the Agora day by day, two very different groups of people had begun to to engage with him. In verse 18 we read, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now according to theologian Daryl Bach, The Epicureans and Stoics would have been the two most prominent philosophical schools of thought in Athens during this time. But who were they, and what did they believe? The Epicureans were a group of people who followed the teaching of the Greek philosopher Epicurus, who knocked around about 300 BC. Now, we could describe Epicureans as having similarities to agnostic secularists today, They were indifferent to the gods, and they saw them as distant and uninterested in human affairs. They strongly favored naturalist explanations over theological ones. They saw death as final and did not believe in the afterlife. And as a result, there'd be no future judgment. So with this in mind, they concluded, humans should be free to enjoy life, act on their impulses, pursue pleasure, and live for today. That was their worldview. We could describe the Epicureans as hedonistic materialists. And the second group of people mentioned in verse 18 are named as Stoic philosophers. Now, we've probably heard the word Stoic as being kind of poe faced. Um, Stoicism was a philosophy founded by a theologian called Zeno of Citium in the early third century and was vastly different to the Epicurean philosophy. Unlike their agnostic friends, The Stoics were pantheists, and that means that they worshipped many gods. They held the view that happiness could only be obtained through the practice of living a virtuous life. They also believed that knowledge could be attained by the means of rational reason, whereas Epicureans believed that knowledge was obtained more through the senses. Why does this matter, though? Why do we need to know about Paul's audience? Well, I think it matters because his audience shapes how Paul communicates his message. Paul's address in Athens is one of the best examples we have in the Bible of how we see this work. The differences amongst Paul's audience are diverse, and it meant that he had his work cut out. And it doesn't take long in his address before we hear this, before this becomes apparent. Let's read verse 18 and 19. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Despite the initial heckling from the crowd... Paul's efforts to faithfully preach the good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus have earned him an audience at the Arapagus. This was a big deal at the time. The Arapagus would have been central to Athenian life. It was a place where the city's intelligentsia gathered to regulate city life, education, public morality. But it was also the place where they discussed and reasoned about the latest ideas and the latest philosophies which, is, which was something, as verse 21 tells us that seemed to be a favourite pastime of the Athenians when Paul arrived at the assembly he must have been intimidated but he starts his address like this so they start, he started his address with a, they, they questioned him at the very beginning They said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arapagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, Paul's opening sentence would have been received by his audience as a compliment despite worshipping in all the wrong places. Paul wants to acknowledge that he's noticed that the people of Athens are a worshipping people. I love how Paul opens his address, and I think it can teach us a lot today. It would have been easy for him to start his talk by rebuking his audience. Let's not forget, only a couple of verses ago, Paul was indignant at the extent and depravity of the idolatry. But Paul doesn't do this. He doesn't launch into an angry tirade. Rather, he seeks to connect and engage with his audience by getting them on the side. Now, it's important to state Paul isn't compromising his message or watering it down. He's not letting his audience off the hook for their idolatry. He will confront this later. But what Paul is doing is that he's trying to engage his audience in a winsome way. Paul is working hard to bring them on side so that they stay engaged and listen to what he has to say. He does this skillfully throughout his address, primarily by using points of reference that his, that his audience would have been familiar with. The first instance of this can be found in verse 23 where Paul refers to the altar of the unknown God. That's a picture of that altar that Paul refers to. The altar that Paul highlights would have been familiar to his listeners. They would have seen it with their own eyes. They probably even drove past it in their chariots to work. And they even may have even worshipped and presented offerings there. Paul uses something that they knew and were familiar with. He uses this specific language for uh, this specific landmark, sorry, for a purpose to highlight their own ignorance. They literally worship a God that they don't even know. Their ignorance can't be denied, it's been inscribed on the altar itself. So, Paul is going to use this as his opportunity to tell his audience about who this mysterious God is. But Paul doesn't only refer to Grecian architecture as a point of reference to support his message. Paul also draws on popular Grecian literature. In verse 28, we can see Paul skillfully recontextualizes two famous poets that his audience also would have been really familiar with. A 21st century version of this um, would be like using a reference from a blockbuster film, or using lines from a recording artist. So why did Paul go go to all this effort to communicate with his audience? Wouldn't it have just been easier to use a message that he had previously preached in another city? They've not heard it. It's fine. Use the one we used in Philippi. Paul didn't do this because he understands that people are unique. What works in one place might not work as well in another. So he sets out on foot and walks the streets of Athens. He looks and carefully observes and he refers to Grecian popular culture to to engage his audience. The reading we've heard earlier shows the heart behind why Paul did what he did. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul's heart is to win as many as possible so that he might save some. Paul is motivated by love. He wants those around him to know that same life life transforming relationship with Jesus that he experienced chapters ago on the road to Damascus. How amazing and how inspiring is that for us today? Let's continue to explore what Paul had to say. The core of Paul's message is that the God he's presenting to the Arapagus is unique to all the other so-called gods that they've currently been worshipping in Athens. The God Paul presents is identified as Lord of heaven and earth. He is Lord over all things. He's not created out of wood, stone, or metal like those other gods, but is the creator himself. And he's not confined to temples, nor does he rely on offerings bought by human beings. He's not distant like these other gods, but near. And we are created by him as his offspring. In verse 29, Paul uses this to say that therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such things, such ignorance, sorry. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul's calling his audience to turn away from their idolatry as children of God created in, image, uh, created in his image, God should no longer be thought of as an image created from gold, silver, or stone, as these are just inadequate representations. In verse 30, Paul says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What does Paul mean, what does Paul mean when he says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance. Well, the late theologian John Stott said that it's not that God didn't notice it, he wasn't ignorant of it, nor that he acquiesced it, in it as excusable, but that in his forbearing mercy he did not visit upon it the judgment it deserved. But now he commands people everywhere to repent. Why? Because the certainty of the coming judgment. Paul's saying that there's no more excuses for ignorance. You've now heard about this, God. Verse verse 31 verse 31 shows us that God's judgment is coming. It will be universal and no one will be immune. Therefore, those listening to this talk need to come before God and repent. So, what's the outcome of Paul's address? Well, despite Paul's impressive and skillful presentation, his mention of the resurrection leads to Paul's address being prematurely cut short, as he faces hostile sneers from many in the gathering. In a world driven by results, results, we could conclude that Paul's address was a failure, He didn't even get to finish his speech. But God doesn't judge us by these same figures. (laughs) It's not about results. I would argue that Paul's address was a success. In his book, Honest Evangelism, Rico Tice says that successful evangelism is not someone becoming a Christian. It's someone hearing about Christ. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. Because we can all do that. Thankfully, though, Paul's message did appear to get through to some people gathered at the Arapagus, as we read that some wanted to hear more about the subject, they wanted another listener. And even better, verse 34 shows us some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionymus, a member of the Arapagus. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Paul faithfully and diligently brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And the outcome reverberates into heaven as Deonymus, Damaris and a number of others join the family. So as we leave here tonight, Let's be a people who look carefully. Let's take the time and effort to seek to understand the world we live in and the people that we are called to minister to. Let's be a people who feel deeply. There's a beautiful song called Hosanna and it contains the line, break my heart for what breaks yours. Let's not be indifferent. Let let us um, ask God to give us sensitive hearts that become attuned to the very attuned and in sync to the very beat of His. And finally, let's become a people who learn how to share Jesus clearly. Like Paul, let's learn to communicate the gospel in a way that people can understand and to people who and to be people sorry who are moved into action with a passion to go out into the world and to win as many people as possible